What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Steve Martin. Good evening, Steve. How are you? I'm really good, Yaz. Yeah, good to see you. How are you? Likewise. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Um, Steve, you know, just to kind of help the listeners and viewers know a little bit more about what we're going to discuss tonight. Before we get there, I want to start with Steve Martin. Who is Steve Martin? What does he do? And how did he get to where he got to? Yeah, so first of all, I should clarify, I'm not that Steve Martin, of course. Um, I think, Yaz, yeah, I'm a a constant source of disappointment to hotel check-in staff, or at least when hotels are open, I was a constant source of disappointment to hotel check-in staff when they thought that that Steve Martin was going to come in. I'm Steve Martin, the persuasion scientist. I'm a visiting professor of behavioral science at Columbia University, and uh, I'm an author. I write about influence and persuasion, and that title, persuasion scientist, may surprise you, may surprise listeners that there's a science to influence and persuasion. A lot of people that we encounter in our day-to-day work feel that influence the ability to kind of capture people's attention get them to listen to you is something that's you know ingrained at birth it's a born skill that some people are lucky to have and and others just need to look on enviously and hope that one day they might you know capture an ability to sway an audience or convince the undecided uh, but i'm here to tell you that actually that's not true and that anyone can learn to be more influential and persuasive get their message listened to more more frequently just by following a simple few rules of, of human psychology uh, so that's what we do and um, i've been doing that for about 20 years and as you know you and i met at one of the uh, Premier League events uh, a few years ago over in, in Windsor when we were talking about this with football coaches and, and, and football managers. So I have a broad audience that are interested in getting their point of view heard more often. And so I guess that's what we're going to talk about tonight, right? A bit more about that journey. You know, we're going to dive straight in there. And we met a couple of years ago on, on, on that event. And, you know, you were talking about the, uh, the science or, you know, what some would consider as an art of persuasion. Um, but obviously we're here to, you know, with you to kind of decipher that a little bit further, but I want to kind of maybe take you back in your own journey a little bit and try and understand a little sure. bit more about what got you into that line of research. If you're like, you know, where, was it, was it a, a failed negotiation at some point that you thought, nah, I need to get, I need to fix this and get, get that back on track. And you know, what, what, what's the story behind that? Actually, it was a piece of good luck, good fortune. Right. I, I think one of the things that often we're not, necessarily permitted or we allow ourselves to admit is that sometimes we get to a position a fortunate position in life not just through hard work and talent but sometimes it's being in the right place at the right time and being fortunate and that's certainly the case for me um i spent the first i think it was like seven or eight years of my career working for a big corporation thousands and thousands of people working for this organization around the world and of course, big organizations are interested in getting their products sold, their messages heard. And through a range of different pieces of good fortune and being in the right place at the right time, I got more and more promoted to a position where I suddenly was responsible in a training and coaching function for ensuring that all the people in our organization were as you know, effective in communication and influencing others as they could be. I realized that I really had little in terms of an appropriate set of expertise or background to be able to lead that program of work. And I remember, I'm, you know, I studied psychology. I remembered this guy in the US 
a world famous social psychologist who had been studying and writing about the influence of persuasion process from the late like the 1970s yes and I kind of thought that he might be a good guy to speak to about the challenges we actually had see whether or not I could bring him into the organization so I contacted him he took the call and we started working together and the idea was that you know I'd bring this scientist this world-renowned academic into our organization and he could help us to kind of develop programs of coaching and training for all our people and then the company i was working for got taken over by an even bigger rival and i found myself in the situation thinking right what do i do do i stay or i've got a pretty good relationship with this guy now and so that's the direction i took yeah as i kind of decided this might be quite an interesting thing to do. I was kind of 20 years ago now, so I was still pretty young. And so I decided to go and work with him. And uh, it was one of those fortunate decisions, the best decision I've made. It, it's, it's forged my career. So we started working together. We were training, coaching people in these principles of influence and persuasion. I'm sure we'll get to talk about those in uh, the coming time that we have together. And then we wrote a book together. And it turned out that that book that we wrote landed pretty well. It right, right book, right time. That was kind of 2008 when we published that. And um, <clears throat> it kind of hit the bestseller lists in the UK and across the world. And then life changed for me. All of a sudden, people are really getting interested in the psychology of influence and persuasion. And that's when the real kind of day-to-day -day work really took off. People were calling us and saying, hey, you know, we, you've read this book, you do this research, it'd be good for you to uh, come and work with us, advise us on you know, certain challenges that they actually had. And uh, so that's that's where the career really, really took off. And, and now we're in a situation where people around the world, from organizations around the world, and mm. probably most pertinent to the conversation we're having tonight, you know, even the LMA, the League Managers Association, the Football Coaches Association, the Rugby League Association, they, they, they come to us now. They're all interested in getting heard mm. and uh, how they might uh, get better at that. So that's the story. Awesome. You know, you've know, you talked about a couple of different things there and a few questions have kind of popped up in my mind. I want to start with this one, though. Um, influence, persuasion. What do you identify as a difference from your perspective? Um, and can one exist without the other? Yeah, it's a really good question. There is a difference. I define influence as some form of change, generally an active behavioral type of change that, that might occur. I persuade you to donate to this. I influence you rather to, to donate to this particular charity. And so you, you, you click on a link, you, you, you make a donation, or I... I influence you to support a particular cause or to commit to some sort of action in a coaching environment, for example. And it's about that specific change in behavior in that moment. So that's what I define as influence. It could be a single change or act in a given moment. Persuasion is more about inner changes that take place within us. So you may be able to influence my behavior in a certain way today, so I change my behavior. It doesn't necessarily change my mind. So persuasion I associate more with changing minds. You know, as people change their behavior, perhaps they start to think, actually, this is quite a good thing for me. And so those inner changes in their beliefs occur. And that's what I call persuasion. So that's how I differentiate the two. No, definitely. And it kind of off the back of that then, in terms of that, how to get heard you know my next question is what, what, what would you identify and perceive to be the difference between someone hearing you and someone listening to you yeah so i think it's largely about signaling and, and receptivity so one is about i've heard what you've said A another is really my reaction to what you've said has it had that influence and that's i think another important point about this business of successful influence and persuasion a lot of people are surprised when i say that it's not necessary to change people's minds in order to change their behaviors but it's entirely true i think a lot of us fall into a trap of thinking if i want to kind of get you to do something if i want to persuade you to 
act in this way or support this cause or follow this particular program. I need to change your mind first. And that's not true at all. There's lots and lots of examples in everyday life where we behave in a way because it's where we are in a given situation. The, the environment demands that we behave in that way, but we wouldn't necessarily believe that that's the right thing to do. And so I think it's a really interesting perspective for those people that are interested in you know, how they become more influential, how they get heard more. This idea that I need to change your mind before I can change your behavior is, is a myth. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. And just off the back of that, then, you know, you talked there about changing behaviours, um, potentially before changing people's minds. I want to kind of maybe start off in, uh, by asking, right, in terms of that getting heard piece, that listening piece, why do we listen to some people over others? And obviously, you know, there's probably a science in, uh, I guess, certain bits in, in that. Secondly, not only why do we listen to some, of the, some, other, some over others, but... How, how much of those those elements there, or how many, you know, what kind of variables do we need to consider when we're trying to yeah. have certain interaction with people and how we then communicate with them, if, 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 that, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. So well, let's, let's answer that question by thinking about an example that, or a situation rather, that's happened to all of us. We have an idea and we go and talk to someone about an idea. It could be, a way in which we could be a little bit more efficient at work. It could be a, an idea you have about coaching a client. It could be, you know, whatever it is. And you deliver your idea and it completely falls on deaf ears. It's, it's lost. The message isn't heard. Yet someone else can come along, maybe a couple of days later, with the exact same message that you had, and they can deliver it to the same audience and suddenly that audience, that person, that group now think it's a great idea. So, you know, and you're smiling and you know, I'm smiling because we've, we've all been in that situation. It's really frustrating. You think, well, I said that two days ago and you completely ignored me. Someone else comes along and says it. And suddenly you think that this person is the wisest person around. You know, what, what, what on earth is going on there? I think there's a couple of things going on. The first is, a function of modern day life. We, we are now in this situation where we are so overwhelmed with information. It's, it's pretty hard to listen to people. It's pretty hard to pay attention and fully attend to what people are saying. And one of the reasons for that is, is that there's so many people talking. There's so many people you know, with their ideas, listen to my message, you know, marketeers, listen to my brand, you know, managers, do what I say, these kind of things. And so one of the ways in which we kind of get around that overwhelming amount of information, Yaz, that we're faced with on a daily basis is we stop listening to what is being said. And instead, we pay attention to who is saying what is being said. And that's interesting because what that implies these days is that the messenger is often more important than the message. And if we're not a good messenger, regardless of how good our message is, we're in a bit of a spot there because the chances of us getting listened to fall away. So that's kind of what's going on. Yeah. No, you, you make you make some good points there. Sorry, just to pause you for a second. Like, it, yeah. it, that's a point. Literally, I was having a conversation a couple of hours ago with someone else, and, and just talking about this idea of uh, being a messenger and uh, messages landing. And you know, the question I asked them, well, well and, I, and I say this in, 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 in to, to some of my learners on courses, you know, in, in my coach education space as well. When you're now working with a player, or when you're working with someone, if a player doesn't react in the way that you've hoped for the chances are they haven't understood what you wanted them to do. So then, you know, the question I come, I kind of always relate back to them or, or ask them if you like is whose responsibility is it? And I, I mean, I know where the question ends up being answered, but it, it's more provoking thought, but whose responsibility is it to make sure the message is understood? Is it the mm. person receiving it or is it a person giving it? Now, 
as far as I'm concerned, the person receiving the message don't have any any responsibility on on that, unless 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 they've got a reason to feel responsible for it, if that makes sense. Um, but they have to understand some of the context and some of the importance of the message for them to actually, I guess, see the value and um, actually seek some and take some responsibility of it, if you like. But if the message messenger hasn't communicated in an effective manner, it's no one else's fault but yours, if you like. <laughs> well, I think you're onto something there. I, I, I think it's certainly the case that it's not enough just to have a good message because lots of people have got good messages mm. and some people in society are more likely to be listened to that, than others. So I think the the key here is, is to recognize that when we do deliver a message, we're responsible for two things. We're responsible for the construction of the message. So it's content, it's clarity, it's attractiveness, if you like. But we're also responsible for ensuring that as messengers, we are seen in the optimal light mm. or context for our message to land. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that, because we've done research, Joe Marks, uh, one of my research colleagues and I, these last three and a half, four years on these messenger effects. So under what circumstances is someone likely to be listened to? And what's really interesting about our research, I think, Yaz, is that we never really care about what people are saying. In, in all of our research, we, we don't question the message. All we're interested in is what are the characteristics of that messenger that allow them to get heard? So just on that, then, are you now talking about yeah. the, the concept of, obviously, I'm probably, you're probably going to go into this, but maybe tonality, body language, and those elements there? Well, it does come into it. It certainly does come into it, but we're talking on a broader level, actually. We're talking about traits, features that a messenger has about their personality, about who they are, uh, about their physicality sometimes, uh, sometimes about their humanity. Yeah. In fact, I mean, let's, let's, get, let's get into it, shall we? There, there are essentially two ways in general in which people are likely to be heard. The first is they will be heard because the recipient of, that me of their message, be it an individual or a, a whole society, yeah. will see them as having some form of status. I listen to this person because they have status. And that status in our research comes in one of four ways, or four forms. One is their socioeconomic position. So they're rich and famous. We, we listen to rich and famous people. Mm. I know it's easy for us to go, ah, we don't listen to rich and famous people. We do. We, we, we are evolutionary programmed to attend more to those people that sit on that kind of higher socioeconomic ladder than ourselves. It's just the way in which we're programmed. So that, that's one way. Another is through someone's competence. And by competence, I'm talking really here about their expertise, their, their experiences, their training. If someone has more insight, more expertise, something valid to say that has some, you know, basis in fact, and they are renowned for it, I think that's the, there's a good reason why I should listen to them. That's the key piece. It's they're renowned for it. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost, if you like, become public knowledge. This person's got those expertise, or at least they've been given some sort of credibility, at least. Well, it's one piece. It's one piece. But... I mean, take take vaccines, for example. Everyone's talking about vaccines. So we, we find research that, that shows that um, on, in some instances, people will listen to a doctor about vaccine advice. But actually, we also know that people listen to pop stars and famous people and celebrities about vaccine advice. They're not experts. They don't have credibility in that field. But what's interesting is how we will often see one characteristic of a messenger in this case their socioeconomic position yeah and then start to assume all sorts of other features that they have that they don't that that halo effect kicks in there's an example of a status driven messenger so there are four there's socioeconomic position there are those people that have expertise there are yeah. dominant people so think donald trump and finally there's attractiveness often we listen to people who have some aspect or perceived physical attractiveness and we listen to them differently. So what's really interesting about all of those is that A, they signal someone's status, and B, they have nothing to do with what is about to be said. They just 
because they're seen by their audience to possess yeah. one or more of these forms of status, they increase the likelihood they're going to be listened to. All, all that's going through my head right now is millennials, <laughs> social media, influencers. Uh, uh, I'm curious to know maybe from your perspective, is there any research yeah. that kind of delves into um, how maybe listening habits, if you like, and influence, influence habits have changed over the, over the years and whether there's um, potential for people to have a, a larger influence on different generations um, and how that's maybe changed over the years and whether the, you know, whether I guess, cause the, the other, the other, you talked there about, you know, being attractive, being in the, you know, renowned for mm-hmm. you know, your competence in a particular area or being rich and famous, if you like. Um, but there's also obviously a lot of people who maybe don't fall into those categories and probably have great amounts of knowledge and wisdom, if you like to kind of lend to any area of life or athlete. Perhaps. Exactly. So exactly. What does that person do to kind of get that, you know, get that hook on it, uh, people's ears, if you like? Exactly. So there is something they can do is remember, I said there are two types of, of messenger traits. There are these hard status driven traits, socioeconomic position, expertise, dominance, attractiveness. There are also softer messenger traits. And the difference between the hard messenger and the soft messenger is the soft messenger doesn't seek to establish a position over their audience. What they do is they seek to establish a connection with their audience. So rather than being status-orientated messengers, they're connected-orientated messengers. And again, there are four ways in which they can do that. They can signal their warmth and their similarity. They can signal their vulnerability. They can signal their trustworthiness. And or they can just simply be charismatic. They're the way in which they interact, the way in which they use their hand gestures, they engage people. Um, so those are the four soft traits. So it's it's not the case that if you don't possess expertise or if you're not a dominant characteristic, you're going to not be listened to. That's not the case. What is the case is you need to recognize that there are, in total, these eight traits, four, four hard, four soft. In fact, you can actually do a test to find out which are your preferred characteristics. Mm-hmm. You can go to messengersthebook.com. There's a test on there. It's free. It takes about five or six minutes. And it will tell you what your primary and secondary preferences are. And it will give you some feedback in terms of how then you can perhaps change the way in which you position your messaging yeah. such that people are more likely to hear you. So just on that, then, I want to take, take you back a few steps. You yeah. talked about those four soft traits. Uh, maybe someone doesn't have those uh a different influence, influential factors, if you like. Both, of, I, I, I can maybe my naivety is probably telling me this, but from the, if you've got those influential factors, it's probably a lot easier to kind of get the influence and persuasive, persuasive conversation going in your direction, if you like. But for those that don't, do they then potentially have to find themselves, whilst utilizing these soft traits, having to adapt and maybe. The, the, the obvious answer and probably the answer probably is common sense more than anything but i'm curious to know whether they have to maybe adapt and be flexible in how those traits then manifest themselves well they might do yes it's a really interesting question but of course the the bigger challenge there then is the risk of coming across as inauthentic right. or as contrived mm. so you know a lot of these traits are fundamental to our personality so just some people in life are dominant by disposition i certainly wouldn't recommend to anybody that if you're not a dominant by disposition personality that you try to start being dominant it you just really don't want to do that and there are certain people that you know are born into positions of higher status or are blessed with you know the the attractiveness uh gene if, if you like so there are probably things that are less amenable to change and to adaptation in these messenger traits, but there are certainly some things that are very much, I think, open to uh, adaption and, and, and we can improve on, on ourselves. So competence is, is a good example. Clearly, we can get good at things, mm. but actually those people that are good at things can arrange for their expertise to be introduced by other people so let me give you an example so we have a team of researchers and they're they're all relatively young okay and what's interesting is if you take them into meetings i mean most of our meetings as you can imagine at the moment are are virtual but 
you know, previously when we've been into, you know, kind of in-person meetings and things, you've got all these young people around the room and they're often faced with, with older, more mature kind of established business people in the room. And, and, and immediately you see that thing happen where the business people look at these younger people, especially the, the, the younger women and, and just automatically start to make assumptions about, well, you know, what are you doing here? You know, yeah. And what's really interesting is how they change. This is the the, the people in the room, the, the 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 mature kind of business folks in the room. Mm. How their perception of these people change when I tell them about their expertise. When I introduce these young people as you know the leading scientists in their field at the moment, people that you know published their first article in Harvard at age twenty three, that are doing world-leading work in climate change, these, 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 all these different kind of things, mm. suddenly their whole perception of these people changes. They're, they're... But what's really interesting is we had to arrange for their expertise to be introduced because these people couldn't, they couldn't possibly, can you imagine like a 23-year-old woman going into a, BT, a boardroom and saying, right, you need to listen to me because I've done X, Y, and Z. Mm. It's just not possible. It's, it's, they're not going to do that. So I think there are some really interesting, I think, leadership insights within this research as well that show that for those of us that are, you know, kind of supporting, advocating, and and have young, brilliant minds in our in our teams and in our organizations, it's our responsibility to introduce their expertise. That's one thing that can be done immediately. Their expertise has been there already. It's just how we elevate it so that audiences are aware of it. And so when they do start speaking, they're likely to be listened to. So there's, there's an example of something we could do. And the soft traits, I think, are also great opportunities for us to grow and expand our skill sets. All of us can become perhaps a little bit more warmer. All of us can uh, work uh, in, in ways that, I mean, there's, there, there's a science to trustworthiness. We, mm. There are things we can do to build trust with others. And, and interestingly, there's, there's also relatively recent research, only in, in the last four or five years, that shows that people can also learn to be more charismatic. There are rules that define what people see as charisma. And we can coach ourselves we can practice we can become skilled at, at charisma as well so the answer is a mixed one to your question Yaz. yes there are some things that are kind of setting stone mm. in terms of these messenger traits and they're unlikely to change and the recommendation would be don't try and change them but there are others that i think we can work on and can develop sure i, I guess you know it kind of lends it to my next question in that whilst we've got some of these things of which i you know if you consider rules if you like and um, some things that are almost set in stone how much of an influence or impact does uh, cultural differences play a part in this? Because obviously you go into some cultures where maybe me and you're having a conversation now, you know, uh, you know, if we're, let's say, maybe trying to maintain eye contact, you go to a different part of the world, those sorts of things are almost uh, seen as a sign of disrespect and, 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 you know, and are forbidden, if you like. Uh, they're frowned upon, but how much, of, how much of the research kind of looks into those elements and starts to consider how many, how much of the cultural factors and is there anything that kind of has now come up to say, well, actually, if we want to become uh, better communicators in this part of the world, these are some of the factors we need to consider, or maybe not specifically in that part of the world, but maybe communicate with people from certain cultures and certain backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant question. And, and actually there are, data, there is research to support that you would take different approaches, depending on where you are in the world, or not necessarily where you are in the world, but who you are dealing with and, and from uh, where they come in the world. So two things to, to say about that, Yes, The first is, it's, it's pretty complex, okay? So uh, I, I don't have a ready-made answer for you that says if you go to this country do this but if you go to this country do 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 the other it's it's not as simple as that but i think there are some general guidelines and rules that it, it it's useful for all of us to know about so the first is that generally speaking the the further east and south you go in the world the more collective cultures tend to be and so therefore they're going to be more interested not just in themselves but in how their behavior affects those around them, their families, their communities, these kind of things. And so if you're communicating in those types of cultures, if you're looking to influence, persuade, be heard in these type of cultures, 
it would make sense that you adopt your style and you change your messaging, you change your appeals so that you don't just talk about what's in it for that person, but you talk about the impact and benefits for the society more generally. These are the organize, these are the cultures in the world that are more likely to use the word we than use the word me. Now, in contrast, when you go to the northern and western countries and cultures in the world, they tend to adopt a more individualistic stance. So they are more a little interested in what's in it for me rather than what's in it for others. And so, again, you'd adopt your approach accordingly and you'd adapt your approach and your messages accordingly, talking about, you know, what's what's in it for you. Uh, you'd think about what you could do or give or help that other person with first to create that individual connection. So so there's there's one answer. The other concerns research that's been ongoing for a number of years now that talks about power indexes within countries. So certain cultures, certain countries are more accepting of authoritarian communicators within their societies, whereas others are more democratic, egalitarian in nature. They they, they don't want to be told what to do. They, they like the idea of coming to some form of consensus, some sort of demographic, uh, sorry, democratic um, decision about the, the direction to actually go in as well. So um, that's another thing to consider as well. But I do like this idea of collectivism and, and individualism. Um, and actually, there's, there's research that shows that, you know, in, in, in the work on the principles of influence and persuasion, so those six tools that you learned about when we were together uh, with, the, with the Premier League a few years ago, those principles of reciprocity and liking and, and social proof and, and, and scarcity and the like, that certain cultures respond more to certain principles than others. Um, so I think that's, that's available for, for people to kind of investigate a little bit more so that you can adapt your approach. Because, you know, all of us now are, Know, working you know across borders across boundaries with different groups so i think it's it, it, i think it might to my mind yes it's going to become increasingly important information and knowledge for us to be able to have so that we can adapt accordingly sure and just to kind of just to build on that you know there's two questions that kind of come out for me there first of all um maybe probably go second nice buns soft fluffy and ultra low net carbs discover hero bread the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This, but the question initially was maybe could you delve a little bit more deeper into, I guess, those six principles for, for some of the listeners and viewers. Yep. Um, but the other question was, you know, it's been a difficult and challenging year for everyone um, these past 12 months with the pandemic and how that's kind of affected the world. And um, I guess essentially, you know, Zoom calls and uh, team, Microsoft Teams and all that stuff has become pretty much the norm. You know, we've seen more, each other, more of each other on the screen than we are ever before. So I'm curious to know maybe how much that, if at all, um, in any way has impacted on some of these principles and some of the, the ways in which we go about having influence and persuasion. You know, if you, if you, if you can look at it from a, a, an athlete and talent development perspective, but even just on a general life daily perspective, you know, where, where we're having weekly team meetings, whether that be with our colleagues, we were having interviews over Zoom and whether there's, you know, different things that we might need to kind of adapt uh, in our in our thought process or in our just behavior patterns 
and try to try maintain that influence, if you like. Yeah. Well, let me answer both those questions. Let, let me ask the question about the six principles first, and then perhaps we can talk about how those principles play out in these virtual environments. Um, because the principles themselves, you know, as we go through them, are going to be relatively easy for people to understand. Um, but it might be, I think, you know, useful to talk about how they do play out in these kind of non-face-to-face -face environments. So basically, for a bit of context, these six universal principles, this is the work of that social psychologist, uh, Robert Cialdini, who I spoke about at the beginning, who I was lucky enough to work with you know, many years ago and have continued to work with over these last 20 years and has been an incredible teacher and mentor to me. I'm lucky to have trained uh, under you know, the, the guidance of still the world's you know, most cited living expert in this field. And what Bob did was genius. Um, he essentially identified six universal principles, tools, if you like, that incline people to say yes to a request. So if you have a request to make or if you have a message to deliver that requires some sort of influence or change, people are more likely to respond positively if you align your message or your request to one of these six universal principles. So here they are. The first is reciprocity. The idea, people give back to others the form of behavior that has been given to them first. It's a, a, a cross-cultural norm that all societies live up to. If I do you a favor, you owe me a favor. And so in that context, if you want to persuade someone, it kind of makes sense that you would want to help them first. Let, let, let me see what I can do to help you, Yaz, first before I seek help from you. That's the insight there. Second one is liking, no surprise. We prefer to say yes to those people that we like, particularly those people that share similarities with us and pay us compliments. So there's an example, you know, pointing out your similarity, giving people, you know, compliments, praise, uh, before you seek to influence and persuade them has been shown to be super effective. Authority is the third principle, this idea that we don't necessarily listen to what's being said, but rather who's saying it. So, you know, if we can establish our credibility and our expertise first, people are more likely to be persuaded by us. Social proof is the fourth. It's this idea that if we see everyone else doing something, then it's more likely for us to, to behave in that way as well. I, I remember um, one of the Premier League managers a few months ago, we were talking about this and he, and he said to me, what is it with all these teams now that are playing out from the back? <laughs> Where did that start? And it's like, Reflecting on it, it says, well, why are we all doing it? Well, we're all doing it because everyone else seems to be doing it. There's, there's, there's no other rationale for it. And we apply the same to all our decision-making. You know, if a, we decide what a good movie is on the basis of whether our friends are watching this movie. We decide, you know, what a good restaurant is by reading what other people have said on Google reviews and, you know, these, these kind of things. So we, we use others' behaviors as a mechanism for determining what the right thing for us to do is as well. So social proof. Consistency is the idea that most of us in the main like to have kind of patterns and habits. We like to live up to our self-ascribed traits. So if we make a commitment to something, we're much, much more likely to, particularly if we make it publicly, live up to it, primarily because, you know, the alternative is to keep changing our mind and be different. And that's not good for our relationships and our interactions with others. So if we can position a message that is kind of consistent with, with a commitment someone has already said is important to them, they're more likely to say yes to it. And the last one is scarcity. People want more of the things they can have less of, which is why if something's in short supply, our attraction to it goes up, even though we might not necessarily want it in the first place. So so there are the six principles. And again, you know, there's, there's a nice yeah. little summary video that you can watch online. You can search six principles on, on, on YouTube or the principles of persuasion. And there's a, there's a video that Bob and I have made that about, 12 or 13 million people have watched now that, that describes them. Awesome. Uh, there's a couple of questions that really pop up for me. First, yeah. I've got these two words buzzing in my mind, just constantly just ringing off as you're talking. Matching and mirroring. Yeah. How, how much of an impact do they play in this? Well, it turns out I can answer that question in the context of your question of a few moments ago about how to use these persuasion principles in online settings. So the first is, it's certainly the case that because we're missing that all-important real-life feedback when we're involved with people. That social connection is, is missing. 
that it does make sense to pay particular attention to the principles of persuasion in a virtual setting that are concerned mostly with connecting to others. And those two principles are the reciprocity principle and the liking principle. So let's answer your question by thinking about the liking principle, the idea that we follow those that are similar to us. Um, that's perhaps where that matching and mirroring piece comes in. Although actually, it's much more than that. You know, we're, we're much more likely to follow people and, and engage with people and be persuaded by them, not just because they match and, and mirror us, not at all, but because we genuinely see them as similar to us, similar upbringing, similar backgrounds, similar values, those kind of things. So it's really, really important to point those out. But to your point about matching and mirroring, I've actually seen some research recently that shows that it can be effective also in these virtual environments when you're on Zoom or in your teams. But, and here's the but, mm. it's only effective in the very early stages right. of the interaction. How early we're talking and how early within kind of time? minutes, within minutes of the interaction starting. After that, the effect seems to be lost in virtual settings more so than in, in a face-to-face -face setting. Right. So I guess on, on, on that then, is there a kind of uh, a time frame where this thing, where the effect seems to drop off a little bit? Um, is it dependent on how long the interaction is? Um, and then if, if we're looking at ways in which we can kind of maybe have to accept that it's going to drop off, is there ways that we can kind of sustain a good level of it? Yeah, I think there are. And, and, and it means that we need to think about not just matching and mirroring, which is mm. you know, a pretty kind of basic and arguably quite a lazy way of, of interacting and building relationships with others. So there's other research, and this is linked to that reciprocity principle we were talking a few moments ago about jazz, this idea that people are more inclined to engage with others that have done something for them first. So, you know, if a friend invites you to their house, you should invite them to your house for dinner, that these kind of things. If, if, a, if a colleague at work does you a favor, you owe that colleague at work a favor. That's fine. How does that work in a virtual environment? Well, there's research that shows that if you're about to go into a, an interaction with someone, you know you've got a meeting coming up. Maybe you're going to negotiate about something. Maybe you're going to have a, a conversation and see whether or not you can work together. Some researchers in the US have found that if one of the parties in advance of the meeting contacts the person they're going to have this virtual meeting with and connects with them in some human way, and in these studies, actually, these were people about to go into a negotiation. So they were about to negotiate pricing and uh, transact, you know, transactions over, over Zoom. And they arranged for one of the parties to send a cartoon a little Dilbert cartoon with a negotiation that had gone disastrously wrong. It's actually quite funny. When they arranged for people to send that cartoon by email before they had the interaction, two things happened. The first is the person that was in receipt of that cartoon, that outreach, that human connection from another, trusted that person more. They rated their trustworthiness higher than a similar group of people that they interacted with that didn't send a cartoon. So that's the first thing. It's, it's a route to trust that human connection in the first instance. The second thing is they awarded them more business. They spent more money with them. From my memory, I think it was about 14 or 15% more business was awarded to those groups. So it's not perfect. And we know that we're all craving the opportunity to go back and have a meeting with someone in a cafe or in a restaurant or in a meeting room or whatever the case may be and shake someone by the hand and look them in the eye. That's, you know, what we need to, to get back to. And hopefully that's going to happen relatively soon. Now we're starting to kind of see some light at the end of the tunnel. But in lieu of that, there are ways in which we can use these principles in these virtual settings. And my advice would be to, to pay particular attention to those socially connected principles like liking and like reciprocity so just you know thinking about the, co the coaching context now you know stepping back into the coaching world um largely in the coaching world especially when you're looking at environments 
there's this concept, and I'm, I'm sure this has changed massively now. I'm very interested to find out from your perspective how much of a change this might have in the long term. The idea of having to shake hands with others when you enter the environment. Uh, the perspective of people when they are shaking hands, as an example, you know, if someone's got a firm handshake, there's a perception of what that means. If someone has maybe a, a, a not as firm handshake, if, if you like, um, what does that mean? But then obviously, first of all, I want to kind of maybe understand if there's any elements of that kind of that affects some of the influence persuasion elements. Um, but then if subsequently now, you know, off the back of a pandemic, we find everyone, you know, giving each other fist bumps, does that have an impact? You know, the orders does it have a negative or even a positive impact in any way? Well, I think I, I mean, I don't have any expertise in in the psychology of handshakes. It, it, it strikes me that those people that are determined to kind of hold on to your hand for longer and stronger probably are demonstrating that kind of dispositional trait of dominance. And you know, dominance has its place in society. We we typically look to dominant leaders in times of anxiety and uncertainty. There's really good research that shows that organizations are much more likely to employ dominant CEOs when the business is not doing especially well, when the share price is kind of in the doldrums and there's no clear strategy or direction. But the opposite is the case when, a, when an organization is doing well. So, so those dominant characters have their place. And I, I, I feel it's probably outside my area of expertise to talk more about the, 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 the handshakes and, and those kind of things. What I think is interesting, though, is that I think there are going to be a lot of behaviors that have become new to us that will probably remain as we come out of lockdown. And there are some behaviors that are also new to us that will likely fall away. So I think that things like hand washing and mask wearing for a lot of people will continue uh, after the, the pandemic and the infection rates come down dramatically. In fact, actually, there's there's research from uh, Southeast Asia that shows that in, in previous uh, uh, infectious disease uh, episodes that they've actually had, so I'm thinking here about SARS specifically, um, even weeks and months after the, the epidemics passed, people were much more likely to wash their hands frequently, wear masks in public, these kind of things. But what was really interesting was behaviors that required two people, so social distancing, handshakes, these kind of things, they almost went back to how they were before in a pretty quick time. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's, it what that says is, is, is that if, if it's down to me personally, and it's only me that influences whether or not I wash my hands, wear my mask, because only me has influence over that, that's no one else's decision. Those, or these rather behaviors that we've become accustomed to in these last 12 months or so, will remain for a lot longer, the evidence would suggest, than those of social distancing, fist bumps, handshakes and things like that. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, pretty soon after the lockdown ends and we're able to meet, you know, next time you and I meet in, in real life again, Yaz, I know it's been a, a little while, um, we're probably going to shake hands. Of course we are. We're not going to, going to socially distance those kind of these because that, that requires two people. So that, that was interesting to me reading that research of, of how past pandemics have had that influence. Um, no, definitely. And I, I, I wouldn't say, I, I, there's no reason to suggest that that won't, that, that, that won't happen this time around as well. No, hundred percent. I totally, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I guess, you know, to kind of bring it back to topic then, you know, around landing messages, how to get heard. You talked about some of the the principles of persuasion, um, which obviously then lend themselves eventually to you know being able to influence uh, outcomes. If you you know if you had to kind of maybe uh, as we start to wind down, maybe leave us with some tips on that. What were some of the if, you know I guess the key things that we want us to consider? Um, yeah, just generally, what are some of the things you want us to consider in that? Yeah. Okay, uh, let me give you a few. So, so here's the first. One of the things we find in our research is that masters of the influence and persuasion process are proactive givers. So what they do is they have a mindset, Yaz, that doesn't say, who can help me? 
Instead, they have a mindset that says, who can I help? So they seek to help others first. And in doing so, what they, what they essentially accomplish is a network of others that they have helped that are now ready to help them in the future. So that's something that we've noticed that is consistent across all domains, all contexts. So that's my first takeaway is, is that if you want to be more persuasive in life, think about and adopt that mantra of who can I help here? Don't ask yourself who can help me. Instead, ask who can I help? Give that help in personalized, meaningful ways, and you will find yourself building a ready network of others that will, not everyone, because not everyone plays by the rule, but a significant number of people are going to be out there that will be willing to help you when you need help as well. That's that's the first one. So that's something that all of us can do. And it's not giving things that are necessarily tangible. Sometimes what we give to others is our attention, a piece of advice, a listening ear, kindness, especially these last 12 months, I think those intangible human aspects are going to be important, which actually leads me to the second of these ideas, which is to, to be more human and to recognize that if you want to be more influential, it's not about giving people more information or repeating your message multiple times until they get worn down by it. You know, as we said a few moments ago, the trap that many of us fall into thinking that we need to change people's minds in order to change their behaviors is a, is a kind of myth in a way. So I think, look at ways in which we can be more human. We can reach out to others. We can, we can make those connections, whether it's by communicating a vulnerability, whether it is about sharing a similarity, um, those are going to be important. And for those people that are interested in getting people to take action, here's my third takeaway. People are more inclined to act to avoid losses than they are to act to accrue a gain. So let me give an example of what I mean by that. There's been studies done lots of times, in fact, where researchers will write to homeowners under the pretense of a letter coming from their utility company. And they, they say something like, do you know, here are three easy things you can do to save a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars or a hundred euros on your fuel bill next month or next year. Okay, do these three things. They're ever so easy and you'll save a hundred dollars or a hundred pounds. What's interesting about those messages is that people like them. People, when you ask people, do you like to be told what you can do to save money? They go, yeah, I love that information. Give me more of it. Give me more of it. What's also interesting is, is that rarely do they actually do anything about it. They like the message, but they don't necessarily act. They're not persuaded. They're not influenced and persuaded by it. But if that same energy company changes just a couple of words in the message, and instead of saying, if you do these three things, you'll save £100 next year. If they instead say, if you fail to do these three things, next year you'll lose another £100. Now twice as many people take action. So think about how you can help others first. Be a proactive giver. Adopt that mindset of who can I help rather than who can help me. Generally, just be more human. <laughs> And for those of you that are interested in influencing, persuading people to take some sort of action, remember that losses are much more action motivating and orientating than gains generally in the main. You know, you know they're very useful tips there. I just want to kind of probe a little bit more on the last one. Yeah. Is there any specific words that might be then beneficial for us to kind of utilize when we're trying to land a message then? Well, loss seems to be a more powerful word than gain. One word to avoid is the word new, I think. Uh, one of the things that the word new does, it's new to the, to the person that's doing the persuading and the influencing. I've got this new idea, I've got this new product, I've got this new coaching program, I've got this new model, I've got this new X, Y, Z, whatever it is. You wanna say it's new because it sounds exciting, it sounds different, it sounds compelling. 
To audiences, though, it sounds like it's untested. It sounds like it's, well, I'm, I like new things, absolutely. But you tell me when someone else has done it, and then maybe I'll come back to you. So, so there are words to use, like loss rather than gain. But equally, Yaz, there are words to avoid. And I think one of them is, is, is the word new. Um, particularly, I think, when it comes to issues of technology or business thinking, these kind of things. Um, so, yeah. And obviously, this just ties back into the point you were making about it. And you hear people talk about the saying that, you know, people will do a lot more to avoid pain than they would do to, uh, you know, mm. to, to, to seek gain, if you like. Um, so, you know, kind of, just, you know, off the back of that, then, if we're now looking at maybe transferring this and moving it into, a, I guess, a, a coaching context, are we almost, are we almost saying that we want our players to if you like, have a fear of losing out? Well, here's where I think there's an important caveat that we apply to coaching because I'm asked this question a lot. Are you suggesting that fear moves people? Fear actually, fear by itself is not a particularly good way to influence and affect change. But there are circumstances where a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety is actually a good thing. But here's the important caveat. It needs to be accompanied, that message of fear or loss. You're potentially losing an opportunity here or, you know, there's, there's a chance you're going to lose, you know, an experience, an opportunity, something. When you deliver that message, what the coach must also do is immediately provide a very specific personalized action that that person can take to avoid that loss. So that's a really important part of the communication and the, the message structure there. If you just simply provide information that induces fear in others, induces anxiety, oftentimes what they'll do is they, they won't move at all. They'll, they'll just kind of cement themselves into inaction. So the job of the coach in that instance is to recognize through their knowledge and their intimacy with their players what level of fear or anxiety or potential loss should be activated but then to immediately accompany it with a message that says you know Yaz there's there's a risk here for you I, it, it's a genuine risk um, but here's something that you can do now and in the coming days and in the coming weeks, if you work on this, if you do these things, you are going to be in a good position to avoid that potential loss. And it's that construction of the loss plus the specific action that that person can personally take to avoid the loss that's important. I, I totally get that. And I think it is just, um, if you like, the way I've understood it is almost you're presenting two two options and which one for them in, in some ways they're looking to look at or well, which one's the lesser of the two evils well what you're presenting is is not yeah i can see perhaps not two options but what you're actually presenting there is 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 a risk and a mm. and a route out a way out a, a door an exit to that potential risk that's that's what you're providing there yeah so i guess you know that that way out um how important is it that we i guess present it in a way where there's as, a, 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 as least as possible discomfort on the journey to get that way out. Well, that I guess will depend on what you're looking to get that person to actually do. Um, <laughs> for, <laughs> if, for some people that journey to peak performance or fitness can be pretty painful, can be pretty seismic, you know, mountainous challenge and, uh, and good, good luck to them, you know, for, for, for adopting that. So I think it will probably be largely dependent on what, what, what the action is and the outcome that you're looking for. Um, but I think your, your intention there is, is, is the right one, which is, I, I think there's an, there's an honesty to coaches that point out there's a risk here, there's a potential loss. And I think the intent that you're describing there, Yaz, is that ability to then kind of plug in something you can work on that you can help them with, that you can support them on, but that they ultimately own. That's the key thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's about that voluntary ownership 
of what's going to be done. That's what drives commitment. That's what drives longer term consistency. If we just end up doing things for people, um, you know, we that that's not you know the, the the route there. So I think your intention is 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 the right one there. Definitely. I'm just going to give a take a moment to allow the listeners maybe to raise their hands if they've got any particular questions for you um, before we kind of look to tie things up here, Steve. Um, so, guys, if you are listening in, uh, just to remind you, you are tuned into the Coaches Network podcast. Um, if you've got any questions for Steve around anything that we've discussed so far or more specific uh, tailored questions to your own environments, feel free to raise your hands. Um, you know, just while they're, I guess, deciding if they do want to do that, Steve. Conscious, you know, I've got you know another question for you, and is that coming back to right? I guess at the start of the conversation, asked you know, where did you find your, I guess, steps or that you're beginning your journey into your line of research, if you like. Mm-hmm. Has there been a moment where you've been put in a situation where you wanted to land a message, and you, you know, you felt okay? Well, let me actually go through these steps consciously now. And do you feel like you're now at a stage where you just kind of find yourself going through them without even thinking about it? I'd like to think I do. I'd like to think I'm one of those people that, you know, practices and puts into practice what one researches and what one talks about all the time. Um, But I'm human as well. So I'm kind of open to all those weaknesses, those, those moments where, you know, I score an own goal, I present something, and then I reflect on it afterwards and kind of slap myself on the head and think, gee, Steve, what are you talking about? You're a guy that you write books about this stuff and you you still forgot it. So I'm I'm as fallible as everyone else. Um, but I think I think it is the case that who was it? It, it was a was it a baseball or a, an American football coach that said um, it's not that practice makes perfect, it's perfect practice that makes perfect. Um, Vince Lombardelli, I think it was. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the things that having a specialism and the ability to kind of practice it most days, because, because one of the things that we can actually say about influence and persuasion is all of us need to do it. And all of us face situations every day where we need to do it. I, I, I don't think I've come across a job description yet where the word influence, persuade, connect, communicate isn't in, you know, the the criteria to be able to do that job effectively. Um, but I'm I'm just as fallible as everyone else. But but, but perhaps because you know it's it's the day job. Uh, I'm I'm a little less um, likely to fall into some of the uh, the obvious traps as as often. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't ever fall into them. I'm, I, I I still occasionally. Um, uh, make make mistakes myself. <laughs> no, I, I, I guess it just kind of goes to show that yeah, you, you can have all the knowledge, but you can still, I guess, at times have a situation where it doesn't necessarily work out. So I guess you kind of always got to be, you know, keeping your eyes peeled in that respect and understanding what the context of the situation you're in is and really pay attention to that. Um, Steve, it doesn't look like there's any questions from the listeners um, this evening. However, I've got one final question for you. Sure. Um, you know, just by having this conversation with me now and, you know, being here, um, albeit after a, after a little while of not really being in contact, you've made yourself part of the Coaches Network now. Um, so what is the message that you want to leave behind for everyone that comes into contact with your work? I think the message is that a recognition that all of us as as coaches, whether we're coaching our colleagues and our teams, coaching you know, folks and our co-workers in our business or coaching players on our team or coaching our coaches, actually, because coaches need coaching too, I'm sure. A lot of the ability to do that successfully comes down to our ability to connect and influence and affect change in others. And my message to the coaching network is that you don't have to rely on your own intuition and expertise to be able to do that effectively although your own intuition and your expertise is going to be vitally important but recognize there's there's another place that you can look for support and tools to be able to influence and affect change in a meaningful 
and largely predictable and measurable way. And it's by understanding a little bit about the psychology of, of influence and persuasion. And uh, so my message to the, to the coaching network is there's a ready-made set of tools, evidence-based that are available to you that you can add to your experience, your intuition and your skills uh, to, to increase your ability to influence and persuade others uh, more effectively and more frequently. And it's there and it's freely available. Awesome. Well, it's Steve, thank you again for your time this evening. It's been very, um, very interesting for me to kind of pick your brains on some of this stuff. And I'm sure it has been for some of the listeners and viewers that are going to be able to, I guess, both see this live and later on as well. Um, thank you again for your time, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Always good to speak to you, Yaz. Take care. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.